Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, today your Midweek editors are Barbara and our editor Joy McKnight. And we have also Kimberly Long, our Asia editor, who is back from Korea, where she was attending the annual meeting of the Asian Development Bank. Thank you for joining us. So the Bank at Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories, both live on the Banker website and also news on the banking sector more in general. So we will start talking about some general banking news. And uh, so the first story that I picked, it was about the European Central Bank that has been described as too lax by the European Court of Editors, basically too lax in supervising the Eurozone's um, largest lenders. So the auditor said the ECB has not been sufficiently aggressive in pushing Eurozone banks to reduce high levels of non-performing loans. Um, and I find this article quite interesting because we often see um, an institution like the ECB uh, always praised for its work on the inflation reduction and uh, also on reducing the uh, NPL uh, ratio. So I think I thought it was quite interesting to see this critique that was also quite kind of structured because these remarks were part of uh, more than a hundred page report. So I would say probably the, the, the were quite uh, substantiated in their reasoning. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Joy? Well, obviously, it's very tough for the ECB. Um, and I think it's uh, quite interesting because they can't move too quickly. Because you think about the institutions that we're talking about, which is the largest lenders in the Eurozone. They're massive organizations. Uh, and it takes a lot of time for them to change. Um, you know, it's like turning the big ship around. Uh, you know, they can't turn on a dime and, and sort of um, do things very quickly because I also think you have to be very careful, and I think the ECB is very aware of this, which is about unintended consequences, mm -hmm. right? So if they move too quickly, uh, and they do have an oversight of the totality of the industry, of the banking sector, if they move too quickly, all of a sudden you can have a lot of problems. A, the banks can't move that quickly, mm -hmm. Um uh, and then also the fact that, you know, you might ha actually ha get something where, you know, there's actually a problem coming through. Uh, so I think the ECB is right in defending um, what it sees, you know, what its actions, because like I said, it, it sees the industry in its totality. Um, and I think it has done actually quite well in terms of the non-performing loan ratio. And they brought it down uh, quite substantially. And if you think about the eurozone crisis, that's not that didn't follow m much further behind the uh, global financial crisis. Um, so they have done quite well. They have been the banks have been cleaning up their loan books. Of course, you know they can always do better. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's really important to have this audit and to have you know uh, an outsider view, a critical view of what's going on. But again, I think it's within the ECB's rights to. Mm -hmm to actually defend what yeah. they've done so far. And I think even they are they said oh they think they can do some things better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um so the second article that I'd like to explore is an article that was published on the Telegraph. And um uh, so the Telegraph is saying that the Bank of England is preparing to water down changes to its 
post-crisis rule book after lenders are warned uh, plans to raise bank buffers to strangle small businesses. So it's, it's not, it was not really clear uh, what this potential um, new rules we will be about. I think it was more an article that was based on kind of sources and we don't have any official reply uh, from the Bank of England. Uh, but I just wanted to, you know, to introduce this more as a kind of a, an interesting uh, topic okay, to yeah. see. I just thought it was interesting to see how uh, these new rules will look like. Uh, and this news is quite coming in a, in a period of kind of banking turmoil. So it's quite uh, curious to, at least that's my opinion. Hmm. But do you think it's interesting that the Bank of England is listening to the industry as a whole mm -hmm. and trying to get that feedback? Uh, before they, you know, do anything with the rules. So again, it's not very clear on on what exactly they were talking about. But I just think um, about, so Anita Hauser, our Europe editor, wrote an article in January about the Edinburgh reforms that were put forward at the end of the year um, by the government. Um, and it was talking, you know, there was a, a big fear at that point there'd be this sort of move towards deregulation and an uncoupling from the EU. But I think at the moment, a lot of the uh, you know, the central banks, uh, the regulators, the policymakers are all looking at, you know, those those rules that were put in place after the financial crisis to see how they've served um, the, the system as a whole. And I think, you know, you always have to remember that they're, the Bank of England's priority in this is to have a safe and stable um, financial system mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, I think what came out after the Edinburgh reforms, what the government said around that was just that, you know, what the banks don't want really, as well as being overly penalized for anything, but what they don't want is to have a, a huge divergence with the EU at this point, because that doesn't serve anyone's purpose, you know, because the UK is a very small market comparably and needs to be able to passport into and access uh, the EU as well. So, yeah, the uh, the central banks, the policymakers, the regulators are always walking that fine line. Um, um, but I think it's really good that they've actually taken on board some of the industry feedback on that um, because that's what they don't want to do really is to actually uh, stifle small businesses, which is the lifeblood of the economy. Yeah, yeah. Well said. <laughs> and um, so the third uh, news is about um, the Société Générale chief that apparently said that European banks are fundamentally safer than uh, U.S. banks, which, you know, sounds, uh, sounds good mm -hmm. you know, because we are mm -hmm. in, in the region. So, um, so the remarks were made by Frédéric Udea, who is uh, the outgoing chief of uh, uh, Société Générale. Um, and he actually dismissed the risk of um, a U.S. banking turmoil spreading to Europe. And he was arguing that the region has a tougher regulatory environment. Um, but he also said that in the U.S. he believes that the turbulence could continue. Um, and he's explaining this by referring to the uh, Eurozone's banking regime, which has remained fundamentally the same since the introduction um, of new rules in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, while in the US, Donald Trump rolled back some uh, rules such as stress tests or requirements for smaller ba US banks with assets up to um, 250 billion, as we have seen with recent news. So, yeah, I think it was quite, uh, uh, quite interesting. I don't know if you think that European banks are 
effectively more, you know, safer if European regulations are seen as kind of safer and also maybe more restrictive for from the point of view of banks? Uh, well, okay. So yes, I agree, um, and I think it's a you know common uh, common understanding that an actual fact that uh, that the U.S. banks' problems is is not systemic mm-hmm. in terms of the global um, yeah the global banking industry, um, and it there isn't going to be that kind of contagion that say let's let's say that we saw during the global financial crisis and things because w- their problems are quite. Um, yeah, specific to how the, that operation, how they're operating in the U.S., etc. Uh, so I do think that the European regulations have been very solid, um, and uh, yeah, and, and yeah, they didn't they didn't roll them back. Obviously, there is a review going on in terms of those regulations, but to date, they have not rolled them back. So I think they have, the European banks have been very protected. But at the same time, there's other problems within the European banking sector in terms of profitability, for example. Um, and I guess the big question is, is, are they being weighed down by the regulation? Mm, mm-hmm. Kim? Mm. Yeah, and I think the, you know, if you're going to start comparing the US to Europe, I mean, obviously, we've had issues with Credit Suisse and things in Europe. So it's not like Europe is this perfect place where nothing bad ever happens, you know. Mm. Um, I think with the U.S. it is interesting because there is that proliferation of lots of very small banks as well in the U.S. that maybe that might be where issues lie. But I think, I mean, it's almost as if to say that the U.S. is not at the same standard of regulation or of the capital buffers, which I think is unfair to say. Mm. It's a very regulated environment. It's very, very like highly capitalized. The banks have you know, it's it's not like it's a, a developing market where things might be a bit more difficult. So, yeah, it's it seems a bit unfair to make a comparison in that way. I think. Yeah. Between the two. But I guess it's also you know for the f- the regulations in the U.S. banks are for the global global systemically important banks, mm. the very top level. And I guess you know the problems that are emerging are sort of is down through the long tail. Yeah of the smaller banks mm. that don't have maybe the same regulatory um, oversight. Mm. Um, but you're right. You're 100% right. Like, it is a very regulated market. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a, a move recently to really try and and actually, you know, tailor the regulations to the size of the banks mm. themselves, right? Um, and to look at it in that way. So it's not like a one-size-fits-all, mm. which is, I think, what the smaller U.S. banks have been really struggling with, yeah. is that they shouldn't have the same... Um, restrictions that the larger banks do um, so that you know I think there's needs to be more nuance in those regulations mm. yeah yeah mm. interesting thoughts um, now before talking about some of the articles on the banker website um, I'd like just to have a chat with Kim and just ask you you know what are the topics discussed the most at the uh, ADB in uh, Korea yeah so um a couple of weeks ago now, I was at the Asian Development Bank meeting in 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 Charming, Korea. Um, it was the first time we've been able to meet in person since 2019, um, which was in Fiji. So it's been a long time since everyone's been together, and I think in that time as well, like I really felt there's been a shift in the discussion there now because obviously the climate crisis has always been top of mind in the ADB because of just the impact that it has on Asia as a region as a whole. But it really seems to have picked up a gear this year. And what I found interesting was that the narrative has become more 
like proactive like how are we going to solve this now it's not necessarily just the oh we need to make sure that we reduce emissions we need to do xyz it's not that kind of theoretical thing that's being discussed now it's actually the practical of how do we close down power plants so there's one for example in indonesia i think it's west java where they're in the process of decommissioning that plant early but it's not just a case of let's close the plant down it's like how do we then replace the energy that would have been created by the plant with renewables and also the big topics are around things like the just transition of how do we support the people in that community who are going to be impacted by the fact that a major employer in terms of the power facility and everything that goes with that like the you know not the people who live there the schools that will be there the Mm. um hospitals the medical services the shops that would sell the lunch to the people who work at the power plant, everything like that. Like, how are they going to be impacted if that resource is suddenly disappeared? So it's about how having to work out how those things are completed. So there's there's real conversations around that, and it's that understanding that this is not going to be easy, but it needs to be done. And one thing that I keep thinking about is um, I was talking to Warren Evans, who is one of the climate executives at the ADB I forget his exact title um but he was saying to me basically that they need to learn by doing now Mm. they can't just theorize about how this could happen or maybe this will be something that we'll do in the next 10 years it's like no we need to do it now and we are going to make mistakes but we need to learn from those mistakes Mm. because inaction is worse than making mistakes at this point now Mm -hmm. which I thought was really that I keep thinking about what about him saying that to me I thought that was such a an important step that they're taking now that having to make those changes and also recognizing as well the impact of the accountability that they'll have like saying well you know we can maybe help create dam defenses or something like that but then actually there might be a huge weather event which completely flattens it and then all of a sudden that's all the work all the resources all the money gone but it's again it's it's worse not to do these things so it's also accepting that there are going to be issues within that as well. So it's a real, a real change, I think, in the, in the narrative now about what, what's being discussed and how people are looking to approach it. And also the ADB has created a plan whereby, if CAP, whereby it's going to help release some of the funds it already has using um, guarantees from several uh, donations which it's basically saying it's it's like the one in five out system where for every one dollar then they should be able to give out five so it has the potential to have a huge impact on how much money they can provide for climate programs and it's not just again creating a renewable plant or closing something down it's actually this transition to how do we support communities how do we help people who've been impacted because yeah, Asia is the, the, the thing that get, kept getting quoted during the event was from looking at the Pacific Islands to Kiribati, where it's two meters above sea level, the whole island. You know, it's huge at risk there, not only to the land, but also to agricultural land as well in terms of seawater, saltwater rising. And then on the other side of the, the ADB's remit, where you look at like geographically, where you look at Pakistan with the huge floods there and the impact that's had in the the program afterwards now to repair and rebuild and help people rebuild their lives afterwards like how much effort they have to put into that it's um 
it's a big challenge but i think that the message of like we need to just start and see how things go mm. is a really important one yeah no definitely it's interesting because emerging markets always have a well often have a different view on these mm. topics right compared to us that we live in a, in a kind of more mature uh, market. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, because I kind of asked around that, like how, you know, this, how do you persuade maybe some markets that are more reluctant? And it was basically like, we just point to what happened in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. You know, the that could happen in other countries as well in the, in the region and the impact that that would have, like the millions of people who've been displaced, the millions of people who've been impacted, the billions of dollars that are now needed to rebuild infrastructure and help rebuild people's lives like this could happen somewhere else so that seems to be what they're pushing now is like look we actually have a perfect case in point in the region now this is what's going to happen if we don't take this seriously but i do really like your example of you know decommissioning uh, a power plant etc and, and that and then having that impact assessment on what how that impacts the people yeah right because of course i think this is what also needs to happen more and more is that linking with e and s in mm. esg yeah right so that it's not you know climate change is one thing and it affects people in some ways but you also have to think of what happens to people when you you take away you know their livelihoods right that has a huge s impact and I just want to plug here that I'm uh, doing I'm actually chairing a panel at the Women's World Banking Conference which is all about um, women and financial inclusion which is being held in Mumbai uh, next week uh, so on the 23rd to the 25th of May Um, and the panel is all about the S and ESG and things so I think it should be really fascinating. Yeah I think that is becoming a lot more aware now there's a lot more focus on that now which is was needed in the narrative mm, you know? exactly yeah. okay thanks so, so joy you will tell us more in the next uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. when i come back <laughs> so now let's go to the banker website um so the first article that i picked is about uh mica um what does it mean for banks so f- of course everybody knows that um, last month the European Parliament approved um, a significant uh, regulatory framework, the um, market and crypto assets regulation. Um, and of course the, the, the article talks about how banks will respond to these new requirements, new regulation. And uh, the first thing that mm, is clear is that banks will require extensive staff training um, and they will, any issuers will need to provide complete and transparent information about whatever crypto assets they issue. But the, the most interesting point that I, um, that I think is, it was, is important to highlight is that the article concludes suggesting that banks will either adapt to this evolution of the markets and remain competitive in the crypto business or will potentially um, focus on more traditional services. So this might suggest there will be kind of a bifurcation in the banking uh, sector. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you do? You do you make of this framework? Uh, Well, I think it's uh, it's it's very like, obviously, it's very good in the sense that it gives some regulatory clarity to the banks, because at the moment, a lot of banks have just been sitting on the sidelines because they can't really get all of that all involved into the crypto space because the regulatory environment was just very uncertain, right? So this gives some 
sort of certainty to it, which I think is good. And I think the banks will embrace that because, like I said, they have been sort of experimenting on the sidelines, but they need to have that regulatory certainty in order to actively be participants. And obviously, you know, the whole financial env- uh, system is evolving, right? Um, and it may not go down the total crypto assets, you know, um, private crypto assets road, but at the same time, there's all these, there's new developments around central bank digital currencies. Not all of them are using blockchain technology, you know, but that is moving forward. And so just to not be able to do much and just be waiting for that regulatory clarity has been a bit of an issue. Um, uh, so, and it also helps to level the playing field a bit. And of course, the big thing is, is it's about protecting consumers at the end of the day, right? Because of there has been some crypto scams and obviously there has been some big exchanges that have already um, collapsed, etc. Um, but for me, this is this uh, mica is just the beginning. This is the first foray that the EU has taken into this world, and the framework will will re you know be iterative, uh, and they'll be reviewing it all the time. But I think it's a good step forward, actually. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a you know it it will give a kind of a, a level of legitimacy, I think, as mm. well, like where you you know Joe you touched on like kind of the the crypto scams and like the kind of the bad stories, but I think maybe if there is that certainty from the banks about what they can do and what they can offer it will give people more confidence mm. in it as well and to say okay well this is not some slightly shady thing that i don't really understand it's like if my bank that i trust with my money and mm. i've you know has a is a safe place on the high street or whatever you know it's it, it gives that legitimacy to maybe more people starting to explore as well mm. yeah so, yeah good point um, and the second article is about um, is from uh, one of our contributors and is about the UK's deposit guarantee scheme. Uh, does the UK's deposit guarantee scheme need reform? So, of course, the financial services compensation scheme in the UK offers uh, 85,000 deposit, deposit guarantee, while the US equivalent is uh, guarantees up to uh, 250,000. So it's, it's, uh, we are talking about very different figures. Um, and also the, the speed of uh, a potential compensation is very different because I think it will take, in case of a banking crisis uh, in the UK, it will take maybe a few days or up to a week to get uh, compensated while um, in the US they aim to pay out much uh, quicker. So I think that there are different voices um, and questions about whether the UK scheme needs to do to do more on both the amount of compensation and the speed. Um, and of course, many regulators around the world are now thinking about um, changing or up- upgrading their um, these guarantee schemes and uh, um, I mean I, I would just only think that there are also some critical voices because of course if you um, increase or uh, upgrade this guarantee scheme it, m- it may also cause moral hazard uh, from the part of banks right so you also need a good uh, prudential regulation um, I don't know what, what is your view should we increment <laughs> the the scheme or um, I mean I, I think it's interesting because like if you look at it purely from kind of the retail, the consumer side of things, I think it was only in the last few years where it actually was increased to 85. It was 50,000 pound up until that point. And, you know, I was I was thinking about it from the perspective of like, well, you know, that who has that money and like that kind of money in their bank account and things. But actually, you know, if you look now, like we're in 
I'm not sure how things are exactly, but like post-COVID where there was such a an increase of people having money in their accounts, they weren't spending. So the amount of cash people had was increasing. So there's, you know, I think there's a bigger amount of money in savings than there was before. And also as well, the other thing that kind of came into my mind was just like, you know, we hear so much in the UK about how expensive property is and how much money you need for deposit. And actually someone having £85,000 in cash in terms of having a deposit, you know, or having X amount for a deposit and the rest being used for, I don't know, solicitor's fees or buying somewhere or, you know, buying furniture or whatever. It's not uh, beyond the scope of imagination now you know it's kind of what maybe a few years ago felt like a very large amount of money when you actually look at what the average size of a deposit is especially in London it's quite comparable um so it, it what did feel like quite a lot is actually I think maybe not as much as it used to be um yeah so it could be it could be something that needs to be revised and also like you say just the amount of time it takes to pay out as well is you know, but seven days could be a, a long amount of time for someone, depending on their situation. Mm, exactly. And c- to come back to your point about the moral hazard, right? Uh, obviously, that's a long-standing debate in terms of like the more insurance you have, the more risk you're willing to take, etc. But again, I just think that your money should be protected. That's what the regulatory environment is all about. Like you, you know, especially when you talk about the you know the highly regulated banks. You know, I think, to be honest, I think all your deposits should be, oh, that's just me, all your deposits should be protected um, because they, you know, it's sort of underwritten um, by the bank and the, you know, and and the government itself. But anyways, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> um, but I also think, to be honest, at the end of the day, uh, it it's really comes back to your point, Barbara, which is about that better oversight is needed, right? So in actual fact, banks shouldn't, collapse in the way that Silicon Valley Bank collapsed in the US because fundamentally there should have been greater oversight on what they were doing, how they changed their business model a few years before and how that had an impact, you know, how their deposits went from about 50 billion to like 200 billion in the span of three years. That's massive, right? And so, you you know, there needs to be more regulatory oversight of each uh, individual institution and to make sure that they're, you know, they're adhering to the rules, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. Um, and so the third article, um, I actually wrote it. Yeah, nice. <laughs> So hopefully you can comment on it. So um, is why is LATAM struggling with fintech? Um, and um, this article came about after a chat that I had with a senior official at a multilateral bank in Latin America. And um, uh, he was always saying that um, this particular bank is, they are often asked by governments in the, regula- in the, in the region to, for advice on how to promote fintech laws. Um, so there is a, quite a lot of frenzy on, you know, every government is like rushing to, um, is keen to promote um, a fintech law. But this person, uh, this official told me, um, this is probably not the way to go because regulation is not always the solution. It can also be potentially negative if it comes comes in too early, right? It doesn't make sense to regulate where you don't have any kind of fintech in the country. It's not going to promote anything. Um, while there is, um, it's just like a kind of good from a political point of view. 
um, the focus should be on building a strong ecosystem in the country. So in, in terms of supporting entrepreneurs, human capital and financing. Um, and then, you know, regulation is probably appropriate when the sector is more mature. Um, and um, other interesting point in the article is about, um, uh, you know, the fact that fintech startups in the region, the number of, of them peaked in 2017 and has since been declined. Um, and so it's quite, this is reflecting the increased maturity of the sector. And it's, I think it's, uh, it's a nice point, especially when we always talk about uh, fintech boom, etc. And maybe, yeah, without noticing, we are evolving and, uh, and probably um, there will be other parts of the fintech space uh, such as fintech verticals that we need to will grow, such as lending, crowdfunding, and insurtech. While at the moment we have been more focused on on uh, kind of other sectors or more digital payments, this part is, is really growing. But probably the switch of peak. So I don't know if you, um, you know, maybe in Asia was the what's happening in Asia, for example. If you, if there is the same, there are another level. Yeah, I mean, Asia is a completely different story when it turns out with a lot of ways when it comes to fintech. It's just like it's some places are so far advanced. But I mean, I did do a feature a couple of months back, which was really looking at how the market is changing and like, you know, it is maturing. And like you say, there are other forms of fintech that are starting to get more focused now. And, you know, it's kind of reaching that next stage of moving on just from kind of peer to peer payments or making payments and, you know, bus journeys or in shops and things like that to like higher value goods but also more complicated more complex like insurance and things like that and how that's maturing so maybe that's uh the next step that we're going to see with that um but i think it's interesting kind of like looking at the the whole of latin america really and seeing how it's developing there i mean do you see that as being there's is there a strong like um mobile payment space there and things like that is that something that already exists there uh yes but i think um you know it really depends on the on the country so for example mm. brazil and mexico are very advanced and i think yeah. most of the fintechs are there mm. while like central america is really behind mm. so it really depends on the countries so yeah yeah i do th i do think like it's interesting because regulation should not be um it should not stifle innovation. It should actually help, you know, grow a fintech community. Uh, and in different countries like Colombia and Peru, mm. they actually have quite good uh, fintech regulations already, I think. And maybe you can disagree with me, Barbara, on that one. Um, but I think they have a good, fr they already have a good framework. And I think that is good. I think it's good to have that, actually, because it gives people sort of security uh, and knowing that they can start, spinning up these new businesses, new uh, ideas, um, but that they're working within some sort of framework. But I do think, like, you know, in the UK, um, uh, they had the FCA uh, had the um, sandbox, right? So that new companies could go and actually have a dialogue with the regulator talking about and be able to test out um, their product within a small set, uh, small customer set, so that it doesn't have any kind of, you know, you know, this massive explosion and then something blows up, right? But I just think of someone, uh, you know, a company like Newbank in Brazil, which is just, you know, like the ability of fintechs to 
grow and accelerate their growth is like on a whole different level from what we were even 10 years ago, right? So you see this massive explosion. I think, and because I've interviewed a few people previous, like a while ago, um, around uh, LATAM, FinTech, etc. And I think some of the issues is also the, again, the divergence between the rules in different countries. So that would be, for me, part of the solution because, you know, as soon as these fintechs start to scale, they're going to look externally to another country. But if, it, if you know, the difficulty in scaling to that next country is, is very hard because of the regulations, then they're, you know, then they're not going to do it. And I just think the potential for the LATAM market is massive. Uh, so I think the regulators maybe need to be working in a bit more together as well between the different countries to try and, again, help and accelerate uh, cross-border expansion of yeah. fintechs. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I, I interviewed some fintechs as well, and they were saying that, uh, for example, one of them <coughs> had a um, um, banking license in Argentina, but to expand, they, they needed to buy a bank or to kind of start the process again, and eventually buying a bank was, uh, was easier, or getting a license, um, in the in, in the country specifically, um, but I think also it would be uh, good uh, to explore to I don't know what you think about the relationship between banks and fintech because of course now everybody's talking about more of a cooperation sense there there are more partnerships going on, but at the same time it seems that uh, fintechs are always looking to disrupt the banking sector, but at the end of the day they are either acquired by um, by a bank or they might need to um, if they are in the lending space they might need to rely on a bank for certain services so I'm just wondering was I don't know from the what was the point of disrupting if then you need to it's just like a, a narrative just a rhetoric but I think uh, to me that narrative was maybe about five six years ago mm -hmm. and things whereas now I think there's much more uh, of that will to collaborate from from both sides, right? Because both sides see the advantage. You know, if a fintech has access to uh, a bank, a large bank's distribution network, that's huge for them. You know, but the bank actually wants also to work with the fintech in order to be faster, more innovative, etc., and things. But you know. It's it's still a, a David and Goliath <laughs> situation, yeah. um, and which doesn't always work. But I think they're getting better at making it work. Sorry, Kim. Yeah, I think. yeah, and I th yeah, I think you're right with that, Joe. Like I didn't think it's much of a the banks versus the fintechs as a, as it was because actually the fintechs have realised that like they can't compete in so many ways with the banks. Like they don't have the the size, the scale, the heritage, the customer base to be able to do all those things. But actually, the banks can look at the fintechs and say, oh well. Rather than us trying and testing a dozen things, we can work out which one of these performs the best and we can just buy that one and integrate that into our systems and go from there. Um, and that is what I think is happening more now. It's it's more of a an integration thing rather than a, a collab. It's, it's integration collaboration rather than a, a fight between the two the two major players. Mm. But I do think just my last point very quickly mm -hmm. is that obviously the fintech, the whole fintech ecosystem around the world is facing a bit of a funding crisis at the moment. And I think there'll be a lot more opportunities for banks to pick up fintechs, um, et cetera. And then, then we'll see really how well that partnership really works. So thank you very much, Kim and Joy. It was really a pleasure to hear your views. Um, we came to the end of this week's podcast. 
remember to tune in every week to get your fix of stories from the banker. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on the Banker